Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the South Carolina Disaster Corps podcast, the exclusive podcast that is dedicated to the education of South Carolinians in a variety of topics within emergency preparedness, and the only one that strives to apply that knowledge to increase community awareness, resilience, and service. I'm your host, Sarah Ruiz, and welcome to Episode 5 of the podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Howard Murphy, who is going to speak with us about resiliency. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Dr. Murphy. Hi, I'm Howard Murphy. I'm the uh, Associate Professor at Anderson University in the School of Public Service and Administration. I also am coordinator of the Homeland Security and Emergency Services Management degree program. I've been with Anderson University since uh, 2014 on a full-time basis and before that part-time as an adjunct from uh, 2011 to 2014. have about 30 years in emergency management experience uh, and 37 years in emergency services experience and 34 years in military. Awesome. And we, Cameron and I haven't mentioned this really much on the podcast, but we're both actually college students and Dr. Murphy here is one of our professors who's graciously de- decided and allowed us to have him on the show. So thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So we're going to go ahead and get started with the first question on what is resiliency? Because we have that in our mission statement for the podcast. And Cameron and I know what it is, but a majority of our listeners probably don't know what we're referring to when we talk about community resiliency. Mm -hmm. And resilience takes place not only on a community level, it takes place at organizational level as well as individual level. And so if you take a Webster's Dictionary type of definition, resilience is defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. And so what we have talked about in, in our classes, and FEMA has put this out um, in past as well as other agencies, there are really three phases to resilience. The first phase is to recognize or identify a threat or hazard and prepare for it. Uh, so it's a one-to-one-to-one relationship. And as my last name is Murphy, so I have the perfect last name for an emergency manager. Uh, going to Murphy's Law, the first one, if it can go wrong, it will at the worst possible time. So therefore, you need to plan for it, prepare for it. Uh, so the one-to-one-to-one relationship is there. Uh, it can go wrong. It will, therefore, be prepared. The second phase of resilience is to act in such a way during a crisis that you're mitigating cascading system failures. So you are acting in such a way, whether it's by information uh, management and proper crisis communications, like we see right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, you want to put the right information out there at the right time to the right audience in order to get the right response to protect individuals and ultimately organizations in the community and ultimately the nation uh, from the pandemic and uh, COVID-19 Could I stop you for a moment for some of our audience members who might not know what you mean by cascading system failures? Mm -hmm. If you could explain that briefly. So you're, you're wanting to prevent, by your actions, a crisis from becoming worse and becoming an emergency or an emergency from becoming a disaster or a disaster from becoming a catastrophe. In the public health sector, a lot of that work is done with crisis communications. So you get the right message out at the right time to the right audience to protect that audience, have them take the proper safety measures for themselves, their families, their their organizations, and then ultimately the community. So you keep a small incident from becoming a much larger incident. The same works with... um, non-structural and structural types of uh, mitigation measures or responses. So if I have uh, a flood event uh, or incident, 
then, and we have had numerous <laughs> Uh, heavy rainfalls in in the last year. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, what we try to do is we try to control the flow of the rivers and open the, the spillways on dams in order to, using that structural approach, prevent uh, dams from overtopping or fa- and failing, mm-hmm. uh, which prevents a catastrophe or mm-hmm. at least a disaster in those communities downstream. So that is a structural mechanism we use to mitigate cascading system failures. Definitely. All right. And then the third step in resilience is to, act, to after you've acted in such a way to mitigate cascading system failures, bounce back as a community or as an organization or as an individual, economically, culturally, and environmentally. And we want to do that as rapidly as possible. You have some communities who have recovered culturally, but not economically. The Lower Ninth Ward comes to mind after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, You can't really fully recover and get back to a normalcy or near normalcy unless you have recovered economically, culturally, and environmentally. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually segues into our next question really well. What specific disasters have led to this concept of resiliency in emergency management? Now, back in... 1999 to 2001, uh, there were a group of us that, working with Congress, put forward the concept of a Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And we already had the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The Federal Emergency Management Agency's role was, a four, well, it was emergency management. There are four phases to emergency management, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. You've probably talked about that on other podcasts. FEMA was a cabinet-level position, okay, a FEMA administrator. Um, When DHS was proposed, uh, and then after 11 September 2001, terrorist attacks was adopted, at least in in some form, with the Office of Homeland Security eventually becoming the Department of Homeland Security, uh, FEMA was rolled up under DHS as one of the, I think, 29 organizations that came up under DHS. I think that was unfortunate mm-hmm. because we were focusing a lot at the time on terrorism prevention and deterrence, yeah. and DHS's mission really focused around those two areas, prevention and deterrence of terror- terrorism, and we missed a good bit on the old ha- all-hazards type of approach mm-hmm. that FEMA was using. And so um, while DHS was a good remedy, at least according to many, for uh, the terrorism prevention and deterrence, that that pendulum swung too far to that terrorism side and not, and swung far away from the all-hazards approach. And unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina in 2005 showed us some failures there. Uh, and so... While many, if not most, disasters, at least at the community level, have shown us the need for resilience, at a national level, Hurricane Katrina showed us the error of our ways, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and we have gone back more toward a an all-hazards approach, where terrorism is one of those hazards. Mm-hmm. And we, back then, had the 15 DHS, Department of Homeland Security, National 
planning scenarios, strategic planning scenarios. Eleven of those were terrorist-related. Mm-hmm. A number of them were also natural hazard and pandemic-related. Yes. So we are focusing on all hazards again. Uh, we've gotten other scenarios in place. Um, old Homeland Security Presidential Directive 8 under the George Walker Bush administration was put into place, I think, 2004, 2003 time frame, uh, 2004. Uh, in President uh, Barack Obama's uh, administration, he um, his administration updated that policy and came out with Presidential Policy Directive 8 uh, entitled National Preparedness. Um, so in that he was focusing on a whole community approach like uh, we have been preaching, if you will, pardon the biblical term, uh, for years mm-hmm. that these disasters, the mitigation preparedness response and recovery will take the entire community to, uh, to counter and become more prepared as a community down to the individual level and, uh, and also more resilient as a result. Okay. And again, that kind of segues into our next question about what can individuals, specific individuals do to increase resiliency? Uh, we often on the podcast uh, recommend people get CERT training, mm-hmm. which Cameron and I are both CERT certified. Murphy is the individual who actually t- taught that class for us. Mm-hmm. So what what can an individual do? Oh, there are numerous things that individuals can do, and, and I, I recommend that everyone check out www.ready.gov. That's www.ready.gov, G-O-V, uh, and look at what is uh, put out as best practice for individuals and families, as well as small organizations within that website. Now, three things come to mind automatically. First is get a kit, build a kit, be prepared for 72 to 96 hours without emergency services helping you in the event of a disaster. Uh, You know, major disasters are what I call symmetry shatterers. They break bureaucracies big time. And so most of our emergency services agencies are very bureaucratic in nature uh, so it takes them a while to get organized when they're disorganized and disasters disorganize those types of agencies. And often local agencies are not able to render assistance in a timely fashion because they are also victimized by the disaster. So it is incumbent upon individuals and families to be prepared for these disasters. Have kit, ha- have a kit with the necessary supplies, money, because power may be out, ATM machines may be down. So you need to have a stash of money in reserve, uh, cash on hand, uh, water, fresh water, uh, have a source for fresh water or some way to get uh, fresh water, whether it's you know through some type of filtering device or through iodine tabs or whatever you have available. Um, then make a plan. Have a plan for yourself, your family. And this includes college students, uh, those singles out there who may be living in an apartment or a dormitory, residence hall. Have a kit that will sustain you with some food, uh, water, other supplies for 72 to 96 hours until uh, additional help is provided. And you need to make a plan with others around you, with your family, if you have a family in your household, uh, or how you're going to handle a disaster, how you're going to communicate with other people 
in your family to let them know you're okay. And mo- the best way to do that in a disaster is fortunately text messaging because of smaller packets of information versus phone calls. Cell signal is m- very disrupted in major disasters. Um, make a plan on where you're going to meet in a disaster. Uh, if you're in the house and there's a house fire, where are you going to meet that's a safe distance from the house to await fire and gather as a family to ensure everybody is okay and accounted for? Uh, if you are separated, how are you going to communicate with each other and where are you going to meet if there's a disaster and you cannot communicate effectively? Um, and I think ready.gov also has a page on of family emergency plans. They as do. Well. They have a checklist. Yeah. So that's also another, again, a great source is ready.gov to go and check out and that's right. actually learn a lot of this information. Uh, and the other thing is be informed. Maintain situational awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if Don't wait until the tornado uh, warning comes out. Have some ideas to what the weather is. Get a weather radio, um, weather Carolina apps. Emergency Management Division has an app sure. on iPhone that gives you all those kinds of updates. So you guys should definitely go and check that out and get that on your phone as well. That's right. Uh, but going back to that whole three-step process of resilience, you need to know what the hazards are and be prepared for those. Mm-hmm. That's step one. Uh, so be informed and stay informed. Have situational awareness. Um, that is, uh, at an individual level, uh, you're looking at preparedness at an individual level, building organizational preparedness, which builds community preparedness. Mm-hmm. You can't have the other two without individual preparedness. Definitely. And I'm going to step it up a notch and talk about larger, like what, governments within communities should do to increase Mm -hmm. community resilience, which I think is, you know, most individuals who listen to this podcast probably are not government officials, but they still elect government officials to have a lot of say in government. So if they're understanding what they should do to increase resiliency, they can improve their government and have individuals who also want to improve resiliency of their community. That's right. And so as a government and the community level, and I've been involved in emergency management at the community level here in Anderson County since 2003 uh, when I started working part-time for emergency management and still maintain a part-time uh, relationship with the emergency management division of the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. We go through that three-step process as a community. And, and one of the first steps we do in identifying the hazards and preparing for them to be more resilient is what we call a THIRA, which is a Threat and Hazard Identification and Risk Assessment Process. It's a vulnerability and assessment process, mm-hmm. uh, or Vulnerability Hazard Assessment Process, or VHA. And so we are looking at all of the potential threats in the, in the area. So step one is identifying the threats and hazards of concern. We don't do this just as a group of a, a small group of people sitting in the Emergency Operations Center. We bring in stakeholders from all over the community. So we have internal stakeholders from the government agencies, from emergency management, emergency services, and we have external stakeholders from corporations, healthcare organizations, universities, schools, public schools, and private. Uh, And we go through this process. And step two is to uh, give the threats and hazards some context. Um, So give them descriptions. What are we actually talking about? and, And what are the consequences, potential consequences of these types of incidents? Um, and then we, we establish capability targets uh, based upon those consequences in step three. What, how do we want to respond effectively? What does effective look like? Uh, and then step four is to apply the results. And then we get into the entire preparedness cycle based upon the 
hazards and vulnerabilities assessments that we do. Uh, we get into the preparedness cycle of planning based upon those, those threats we've identified or hazards in the community, bringing stakeholders together to go through the planning process to develop uh, emergency operations plans, the annexes that are primarily threat or hazard specific like flu pandemic or now COVID-19 pandemic, uh, tornadoes, hazardous materials incidents, ice storms, other inclement weather, tropical storms, which we've had all of those in the last few years here in Anderson County. So we've got to prepare for those. Uh, and and so every community should be doing that. It's, it's mandated by local ordinance and by state law that every county have an emergency preparedness director. That is the emergency preparedness director's job is to oversee that process. So we go into the planning, then we go into the training, uh, equipping phase for our response community, um, and then we go into exercising. We exercise based upon our plans, using the training and equipment that we've received as emergency responders. Then we capture the lessons learned uh, from those exercises or actual incidents, because we do after-action reviews after the exercises or after an incident response and capture those gaps and shortfalls and take that back into the planning process. And it, it is a cycle. It is. And I actually had the honor to be part of an exercise when I was in Dr. Murphy's CERT class. And the exercise occurred in the pouring down rain. It was like 40 <laughs> degrees and I was wearing basketball shorts covered in moulage. 19th of October, 2019. <laughs> 2019. That was horrific. I was so cold, but we learned a lot about how we acted as a group. That's right. Now, I was one of the victims, but a lot of my classmates who I'm close friends with were working on me, trying to save me, mm -hmm. and not a single one of them had a tourniquet. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, I was bleeding to death. <laughs> yep, but... Tour tourniquets uh, do save lives. We found that out in combat, and that's why it's uh, the tourniquets are now part of the uh, arsenal of equipment and emergency services down to individual basic first aid trained people. Yeah. And uh, we have we have programs like Stop the Bleed, which is a national campaign, which you've uh, gone through, gone and, through. and yes. we put through our, we put our community emergency response team members, certain members mm -hmm. uh, through in order to save save lives by Definitely. hemorrhage control. And I think we're, we're going to start wrapping up here soon. Do you have any last minute things you want to tell the audience? Like it, bare bones basics of here's you know what i think you should know if you only listened only remember one sentence of this podcast this is what you should remember <laughs> i love checklist i love checklist as an old armor cavalry officer uh on my tank we had a checklist checklists are great www.ready.gov is filled with checklists for planning for communicating uh, as well as for building a kit not only a kit for your residents, but also for your car. A go kit is what I call it. Uh, enough water, enough food, uh, some other medical materials and, and life safety materials to sustain you for a few hours to a few days. That is that is essential. It is essential for individuals to be prepared. When individuals are prepared, they're more resilient. When individuals are more resilient, their organizations and communities are more resilient. 
Perfect. Again, thank you for coming on to the show today, Dr. Murphy. It means a lot to both me and Cameron and everyone here at AmeriCorps. My pleasure. That you decided to come in and talk with us. Uh, very informative episode, definitely. I hope a lot of people get a lot out of this. I know from my classes that I've gotten a lot out of it. And again, I recommend to everyone watching to go get CERT training wherever you are because you learn a lot. I've taken a lot of classes with Dr. Murphy and I've learned a ton from it and it's what kind of got me into this position here with the South Carolina Disaster Corps so again thank you my pleasure and thank you we might even have you on the show again one day because we still good. have a lot a lot of time left for this podcast uh, for any listener who has questions about the SC Disaster Corps uh, let us know on Instagram Twitter or Facebook at SC Disaster Corps for anyone who's listening on our YouTube channel feel free to leave a comment that we can respond to you can also like and subscribe for our wonderful listeners on our various podcast hosts, as well as anyone who has lengthier questions for us, you can email us at scdisastercore.gmail.com. Any new listeners, or if you recommend it to any listeners, can find our full podcast episodes and our weekly shout-outs on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcast, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Overcast, and the SC Disaster Core YouTube channel. For those listening on the hosting site, you can hit the follow button to stay up to date. For anyone listening on YouTube, you can hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with our content. And if you hit the bell little icon, you receive notifications for our new videos. If you want to learn more about SC Disaster Corps, America, or United Way, you can visit our website, unitedwayofanderson.org. Again, thank you for being with us today and for listening, and we hope to see you again for our weekly shout-out this Friday. And of course, remember to stay prepared.